as Elon Musk says, cost of cost is much less than the cost of time. So great engineers figure out how to like manage the scarcity of time and get things done very quickly as well and to attract others and to know how to measure other talents and use other talents and inspire other talents. That was Joe Lonsdale, modern renaissance man. After interning at PayPal in its early years, he co-founded Palantir with Peter Thiel. Palantir was then used by the CIA and FBI to analyze government intelligence to track down Osama bin Laden. By 2021, Palantir's market cap reached over $60 billion. He's also the founder of 8VC, a leading venture capital firm, as well as co-founder of Adapar, OpenGov, Cicero Institute, and the University of Austin. Keep listening to hear how Joe has been able to build such strong teams over the years and why, even in a remote world, human connection is key when building a strong foundation for your growing organization. He shares what's worked well for him and the lessons he has learned throughout his very successful career. This is Daniel Sachs, president of AppDirect, and it's time to decode team building through diverse networks. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. I'm super excited to have Joe Lonsdale with us today. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Daniel. Good to be here. Amazing. So I want to set the stage because many people we have on the podcast, they do one thing really deep, but I've known you for a while. You're a founder, investor, partner, friend, father, philanthropist, optimist. You've done so many amazing things. And among them include co-founder of Palantir, founder of Adapar, founder of ABC, investor in Oculus Blend, Andrew Boring Company. I know OpenGov, Cicero Institute, so many things. But one of the things that I thought was a unique lens that I really wanted to decode and double click on with you is throughout all your experiences, you've been a really good champion of talent. And what I've found is you've cultivated networks that have enabled you and your networks to both thrive. So really wanted to maybe start from the beginning at Stanford and hear how you kind of got into CS and the people you met and how that led you along your journey. Yeah, sure. You know, if we're really going to start at the beginning... I think probably some of the stuff at a young age with the chess stuff and the math stuff is probably pretty important too. You just, you know, I was the California state chess champion a couple times in a row and my brothers were too at one point. And my friends and I did all these math contests and they taught me to program when I was, I guess, nine or 10 years old. So growing up in Silicon Valley and being part of this deep and technical group in Silicon Valley was extremely important and it kind of gave me a pretty big edge. I guess you could say I was surrounded by all these really bright people and you know, I guess I was a little bit of king of the nerds where I had a lot of these friends who were perhaps for whatever reason willing to tolerate me and work with me on various things and willing to help even teach me in many cases. And, you know, having that background, you know, by the time I got to Stanford where I did computer science, I was already way ahead. I'd already done the undergraduate computer science work, you know, thanks to the help of all these other people. And having that perspective and being surrounded by that very, very competitive talent obviously was a pretty big leg up. And so, you know, I've always been very competitive. I've always wanted to compete with the best and to be the best at what I'm doing. And when I was at Stanford, I saw a lot of the very top people were going to PayPal. 
And so I tried really hard to get into PayPal. They actually rejected me my freshman year, but I got in there as an intern my sophomore year. And, you know, being part of that group, which Peter Thiel and Elon Musk have brought together, is obviously really valuable as well. Amazing. So tell me some of the learnings from the early PayPal experience. Well, you know, I think Peter in particular, but probably Elon too, brought together a lot of contrarian thinkers. So you had a lot of people who were willing to and I explore broadly intellectual thoughts about the world, about how the world works, about what's worth trying in business, about what's worth doing in different areas, and really eager to reinvent the wheel because they were intellectually courageous and bold. And that sort of energy was really contagious, frankly. It's really interesting. Rather than saying, how do people do this 20, 30 years ago? Or how is this done? It was much more energy of how can we do this better, starting from first principles, given the fact that we're surrounded by a bunch of the smartest people in the world. It's a very different way of kind of approaching and building a company. And it was very much everyone bringing in their smartest friends to solve problems. So we've definitely taken that energy and applied it to a lot of other things. So what was the moment in the origin story of Palantir that the four of you decided to come together and invest in and start Palantir? I was working with Peter at a macro fund. And I was a top trader there for a while. Actually, we did very well. And I was trying to bring top talents and to help us with the macro fund. And I actually brought in, obviously, with this background I had from the chess and math world and my good friends from high school who taught me a lot of things, in a couple of cases from elementary school, actually. And I brought some of these people together out of their PhD programs. And we were working on stuff. And it turned out that like four or five of my smartest friends I'd known really didn't like finance, really weren't interested in finance, didn't find it as intuitive as I did, maybe. Maybe they just didn't care about money. And that's a combination of things. I'm not exactly sure. I have to go, should go ask him. But, you know, so I had this talent around me and there were all these different random projects people were working on at the time around Peter. There was a spam project was kind of funny. They were trying to make money off the different things there. There was like a new restaurant, which is obviously did turn out as a fabulously expensive thing that failed very quickly, which was funny. And so there's all sorts of really crazy projects and probably even crazier than any of these was that Peter and I had been talking for a while about the anti-fraud stuff at PayPal and how we could probably, you know, take that and apply it to different problems in the U.S. government and upgrade investigative technology in the U.S. government, given after 9-11, you know, from everything we were seeing is they did not have nearly anything close to the level of investigative technology that we had there. So if you kind of put all those different ideas in a row, like they're all quite outlandish. The idea of going and redoing the U.S. government investigative technology, especially wacky to a lot of the people who were around us at the time, I thought it was really fun. I had studied this area a little bit for fun. Everyone, every you know, young teenage boy watches James Bond, and I'd gotten into it and read a bunch of books on it. And so my roommate from Stanford, Stefan, was one of the five or six people I'd brought to work on the hedge fund, and frankly, probably was one of the ones more interested in the hedge fund as well, but it was willing to work on this with me with the others. And we started kind of flying back and forth to DC, trying to meet mentors, trying to sketch up a product that we thought would kind of be the right product based on the lessons learned from PayPal. So to more broadly give investigators the ability to use all the data. You know, at the time we saw the government spent $36 billion a year gathering data in DC at all different agencies. And there's just a huge amount of money gathering data. And yet no one was really able to access that, collaborate, figure it out. So we said this is a really cool problem. So we sketched out a bunch of interfaces, flew back and forth, and Stefan was a really good prototyper. It looked really cool. He's kind of a graphics guy as well. And we were able to get people excited enough that, you know, Peter got really excited by the project and he brought on Nathan. I'm not supposed to mention anymore because he's now an international man of mystery. He doesn't like to be on the internet. But Nathan was a key guy from PayPal who worked on these problems. And he came on and helped build it out. Nathan and Stefan, I was kind of more a product guy at the time while doing the trading. And they were the 
engineers. And we really got, got going that way. And then, you know, a little bit later on, Carp was giving me a lot of advice. And there was a whole thing where Stefan and I recruited Carp because we didn't want any of the other CEOs that Peter was suggesting from the Defense Department. And so it was about kind of a year incubation and Carp got involved and the whole thing kind of took off. Yeah. So the success is unreal. And definitely the reputation for hiring you know, talented engineers and the secret development of the brand has been legend in the Valley. But you obviously left and did many other things. What was the decision like at that point? And you always had the philosophy that you want to found a company and be there forever? Or did you have this kind of idea of, I want to do a lot back then? You know, I started it with staffing when I was 21. And we built the government side. We actually had to build this like all about structured data that we realized we needed a whole new part of the product for all the unstructured data. And there are these pillars about like productizing data integration, all the search discovery analysis platform stuff, all the stuff with collaboration. We had this idea where you want to have pounds here installed in different parts of the world. Then you need to have really clear rules about how they work together. So if MI6 and it's this part of the CIA, this part of the FBI all want to share data to try to catch these bad guys, here's the rules to make sure that they're doing it in a way that they're allowed. So we designed all these really cool frameworks for it to be able to work in a distributed way. And you know, about three and a half years in, we realized government is very unpredictable and could be very slow. And what have we got ourselves into here? So, you know, we should actually probably take some of these data breakthroughs we're doing and apply them to commercial world as well. Because it turns out that a lot of things we're doing are very applicable to parts of finance and energy and healthcare and kind of data problems in the Fortune 500. So I helped get that going with the focus on a very specific interface in finance that I was really passionate about. We ended up having the biggest hedge fund in the world use that for quite a while and pay us very well. And really iterating on that. And, you know, we'd hired, there were six directors underneath the founders. Five of them were my personal friends, actually, people I knew. And we brought them in. And, you know, we're hiring all these really great, talented people. I spent a lot of time. I was very involved in the first 200 people or so in Palantir. And we started this commercial division. There's going to be more stuff to start there. I was going to start another part of the commercial division. And, you know, at that point, five years in, the company was just starting to be pretty successful. You know, it had its base. It had some of the very top talent in Silicon Valley. And, it was basically six years, and I guess if you say it, you conclude the beginning part. And I owned, I don't know, I think I owned at that point like four or 5% of the company. And I said, you know what, this is pretty exciting, but I've already put in so many great people. I've already replaced myself. You know, it seems like it's time to create something there. So in my view, you're like a talent magnet, and the Palantir story is a good example of that. But you did go and start another company before getting into VC. Tell me about the rationale for founding one more company and then you've obviously kind of continued to be a founder. So how do you look at your time? Are you saying like, I'm going to start one thing, go all in? Or how do you balance across different things? When you're first doing this, when you're first getting involved, you really got to build one company and go all in because there's just so many lessons you're not going to know you're not going to know. And there's so many advantages to like just going all in on these things. You need everyone early on just all in on these companies. I think it's very important. When I started at par, it was really based on this theme I've been thinking a lot about so you say, you know, I'm venture capital now. So to speak like a venture capitalist, there's really two things that matter when you're creating a company early on. There's the talent, which is getting the very best people in the world who are motivated, inspired, and aligned and working on it, bringing their smartest friends. And then there's the, what are you doing? And, you know, to create a successful, big, successful tech company, I'm not talking about small business here, to create a multi-billion dollar tech company, it needs to be something that's possible now that wasn't possible five or 10 years ago. So having opinions about the world and what's possible is, I think, really important. And obviously, your opinions have to be right. Otherwise, <laughs> you're not going to make it. And so the thing that was happening kind of the end of the 2000s, 2009, 2010, was you had this new wave of companies that we call the smart enterprise wave. And they were possible 
because you have the cloud and you have the big data stuff going on for the first time. And you have the data coming into the cloud from the mobile ecosystem and from all these other places. And so you had all these companies built in the 1960s, 70s, 80s that were kind of the original enterprise software wave that are all very linear. They don't use to get the edge of the cloud or big data. They don't let knowledge workers manipulate and figure things out. So the processes to provide industries are not nearly as good as they could be. And so there's this wave we were mapping out. And then there were maybe like 300, 400 of these companies that be created. I think that was about right, ultimately. So unlike the consumer wave, which had about 15 or 20 big companies, you know, they were really big. This was more spread out in terms of really big companies. They weren't as big as Google and Facebook and Twitter and et cetera. But there were a lot of them were multi-billion dollar companies, most of them of that size. And so I said, you know, which ones are going to be most interesting? Which ones do I have the biggest advantage and biggest interest in creating? And the platform that would have a very large amount of the world's wealth on it and be able to make more intelligent decisions was very interesting to me as somebody who's interested both in finance and technology. So Adapar, as a new cloud platform that was very badly needed by RIAs, very badly needed by family offices, was something we started, I started working on then really hard. And I went all in on that. But I also helped friends start fewer things at that time. I helped my friends start OpenGov a year later. I helped my friends start Zambato, which is a very successful, profitable share platform where everyone, if they want to sell secondary shares, I think that's one of the best ways to do it. And I guess a few other things at the time. But yeah, out of part, I ended up being like 90% of my time, which I think is the right way to do these things. And if anything, it should have been 100%. But it's been very, very successful. It has over $4 trillion in the platform now. And, you know, built a lot of great talent there. I think I made some mistakes. You know, having gone through a successful company like Palantir, you assume that you know what you're doing. And sometimes you don't realize you had certain things that you didn't have. So I think there were some cases at Adapar where there's a couple pieces of talent missing that if I had thought about it better, I would have even got to go faster. But as it is, Adapar has been very successful. And when you talk about like bringing talent in and having a full leadership team, are you often sourcing from your own network or do you use recruiters? And what's your secret sauce to attracting talent? Yeah, and the most important thing, especially your first couple companies has to be your own core network, has to be, in my case, people I chest or math with or people I knew from computer science or people who I was involved in intellectual endeavors with. I have a lot of intellectual interests where I'll meet smart people. I think having a lot of intellectual interests is probably a pretty big advantage of mine just because I'll get to know people of different backgrounds based on the fact that, you know, I just spent this morning doing a bunch of healthcare policy, which not everyone else likes. And I was pretty tired. So I was up last night with friends having a cigar and drinking. So it was pretty exhausting to do healthcare policy this morning, even though I love those people. But I set up a lot of different goals for myself, a lot of things I want to get right. And you meet really amazing people in these different fields and bring them together. Obviously, the technology networks, the ones that are most important for technology companies early on. And then there's a whole other set of networks, which I call the adults in the technology world. So I wrote this essay maybe a decade ago now called Bring in the Adults. But the way I see it when you're building these companies is you want kind of like the highest IQ, brightest, hardest working innovators early on to kind of iterate towards prototypes and customers towards product market fit and really get there. And then once things are working a certain way, you still want to have the innovative part of the business and you want to nurture it. But you also want to bring in adults who know how to run processes. You want to bring in people who know how to run the sales machine, who know how to run the customer support machine, who know how to run whatever other machines you need to build that have been built, as you know, as an entrepreneur yourself a hundred times before. So it's different sorts of talent you kind of combine to make these things work. And did you start angel investing even before Palantir or was that something that came later? So I grew up in Fremont, California, decidedly middle class. I did not unfortunately have money to angel invest. No fault to my parents. I had amazing parents, but we were not wealthy enough to angel invest early on. I think I first made enough money to write a few small checks, maybe from the hedge fund with Peter in my early 20s. But then I 
really went on the pounds here. You actually surprisingly make very little money from these startups that are successful, as you know. It's, especially back then, it was seen as really gauche to think about like selling out in different rounds. So we didn't really sell out <laughs> early on. Like, Balanceer went public, I think, a couple of years ago now. That's when I made most of the money from Balanceer. So I have a nice house in Texas. But in general, I think I started angel investing 2000. For me, some from the hedge fund. And then I raised a little mini $5 million angel fund that was a lot of my money as well, maybe 2009 or so. So basically, when I was in my late 20s, when I was starting out of par, I guess I was also starting angel investing. Got it. And I assume for angel investing too, you're tapping your networks of people you knew? Yeah, you know, it was more like I was already kind of mentoring and advising all this talent I'd work with that in many cases were going to build things. I thought, wow, this is really cool. I'm really, really bullish on this. This is going to work really well. I wish I had, you know. $100,000 to throw into this round because I think it's going to be great. So I started doing that. And you, know, you learn a lot, by the way, as an angel investor, just like you do as an entrepreneur. I did learn the amazing things overall were correct. So what I did, I had three sizes of investment. I had the really big checks, which back then were 300000 I had the mid-sized checks, which were 100000 And I had the mini checks, which were like ten to 50000 I did a lot more of those. And overall, I did have more winners with the really big checks versus medium checks, which had more winners than small checks. But you learn a hell of a lot about I think about these things, what types of things fail. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that sounds like a really good scheme. It just never ends up being a good idea. It's always about just top talent working really hard. And all the important stuff takes a long time. And what are some of the lessons that you learned then that you think are just as applicable today? Well, like, don't invest in schemes. Don't invest in things where the government's going to bail it out or there's going to be one really giant deal with like a big company or there's going to be some trick that makes you a bunch of money because of some new thing is that it's very unlikely those things work. I mean, I guess there's sort of one time in my whole career is what I'd call a scheme. I don't want to name the company because it'd be offensive to them. But there was some sort of scheme where like all these trucks would be required to put this thing on the truck and this angel investment that like, didn't work for a while and then suddenly shot up because they were required to do it. And they're valued at least in the billions now. We'll see if they actually exit in the billions. But I think in general, like these schemes like that are just not a good idea. You should actually solve a really hard problem over a long period of time. And you have to build a great tech culture. Like basically, all these companies they had like some really good idea with a product that sounded really good, but that weren't being founded by technologists. They all failed. You know, you have to have a technologist involved in the founding team. Is right. It's just been my lesson. And how would you define a great technologist, and what would someone look for? I mean, I think first and foremost, they have to be someone who can attract other great technologists, which means really strong computer scientists and people who think creatively, think like engineers, which means manage, which means building and building managing scarcity. One of the great lessons about what a great engineer is for me when I was younger, is it turns out it's actually very easy to build any bridge you want if you have infinite resources, right? Because you just design it in such a way that it's just like it's very, very wasteful, but it's super secure and it's done. But a big part of engineering is managing scarcity. And you know, as Elon Musk says, cost of cost is much less than the cost of time. So great engineers figure out how to like manage the scarcity of time and get things done very quickly as well. And to attract others and to know how to measure other talents and use other talents and inspire other talents. And so there's just all sorts of different rules for good tech cultures, right? But that's kind of a very, very simple start right there. I think Peter Thiel always really emphasized just like the 99.9 percentile minds are just worth so much more than the 95 percentile minds. So it's like who is the person that was like multiple years ahead at the top engineering school and who won all those contests and stuff. And, you know, I always had friends that were a step ahead of me in some of those things for the international contests or whatever. And those guys, they, it was just such an advantage having on a team. 
it is also true you do want some experience around. So I think an ideal startup team will be like, you know, four or five smart, dynamic people. Maybe they've won contests and like national box contests, great computer programmers, but they also are good communicators that they could have been since something not in tech. They could have been a great historian. They could have been a great writer because they just have a high IQ in general. I think it's very important for very good general engineers. And then you want to combine them with people who have built related things over the last 20 or 30 years. So you do want a couple more experienced people sometimes to guide them. I think early on in that, I underestimated how important that was. And there were things we did that we just would have benefited from having more adults around. So I think that combination is really important for the culture. So you track a solid team, but then are you intentional about building the culture, the vision, the values, or do you like grow organically? Yeah, you have to have really clear vision of where the company is going. You have to have really clear values people share and they talk about, they put down together. And a good way to talk about values is talk about scenarios, things that could come up and how you deal with them. What's most important to the company, what's most important to the people in the company, why you're here. I think one of the values very welcome people who use the company, they want to make a lot of money, that's totally fine. But you need to have other values that supersede that if at all possible, because otherwise you don't end up getting something that's healthy, that's loyalty. The best companies I built, you have a lot of talented people stay out for a very long time. And I think that's the sign of a healthy company. If you have your superstars, it was willing to and eager to stay there you know, for a long period of time. When you create a company early on, you want to give it a claw heartbeat, which is that there's just certain things you do regularly. There's like maybe there's certain weekly things you report on, there's certain monthly things you report on. In some cases, it could be even faster depending on the technical scrum with daily things or whatever. But you start having a heartbeat where people are stewards of the schedule, stewards of the goals. And then you have a culture you have to nurture where I think flat cultures work better for technology organizations and the cultures where people are eager to challenge. I think it's really important for people to get along outside of work as well. This is something that maybe is controversial, but I don't like having a company early stage where they're all very different places in their life and they all just only know each other at work. I think in order to get an environment where you build the trust, the people will push back hard when it's time to push back hard. They need to have some bonds they've created, and those bonds are much stronger if they have some social bonds as well. It's like a well to draw on for the people in the company early on. And so that tends to mean that you want like socially a more homogenous company, at least at the very beginning, in order to get that kind of healthy energy, which... People like Max Levchin have talked about this as well. I'm aligned with him on that. I think the way he said it got him in trouble because it sounded like he was saying not to bring in diverse people. Of course, you want to bring in diverse people. Of course, you want to have different skill sets. But you need to be socially interested in hanging out with each other, I think, for a startup company. I think that's actually key. Yeah, it seems to me like you want people to be all in. And what I found is that a lot of founders I interact with, they talk about how people show up, they'll work, but then they all do different things. It's really hard to have that singular focus and that trust and that energy. And that's made even harder by remote teams. So definitely resonates. That's why both things so hard for me. I just like, yeah. it's so hard. It's how do you build that deep well of trust and the bonds and the shared values and the shared social time? And maybe if you have really good offsites all the time or something, it can work. But it's just, yeah, the remote thing seems so hard for me. Yeah, the hard thing though is that if you're tapping your talent networks and like you and I both were in the Valley, we moved. You're in Texas, I'm in California, LA, but you have people everywhere. And to just say, I'm going to only be in Austin is limiting too, based on your talent pool. So Yeah, I, I tried doing something only in Austin that was very important to me. And we ended up basing it mostly in New York and San Francisco for the fintech company I started recently. But we have offices in San Francisco. We have offices in New York. People work really close together there. We fly back and forth. We do offsites together, some of those in Austin. And I think that's worked really well. Uh, the idea of just people being everywhere to me is still just so much worse than having bases where the team's together. Yeah, I agree. And I'm like fueled by just being in person with people. So it's definitely something that's exciting. So 
I think one of the cool things that I've known personally about you that a lot of people don't know is when you started 8VC, you had an advisory board. And on that list is everyone from Stephen Harper to Ashton Kutcher to Nima from Blend to Aaron Levy from Box. I was grateful to be on that list. And what I found is it created like an instant connection for me where whenever I met great talent or whenever I met people, I thought of you and I thought of ABC and sent them to Alex or others. And I think if that formal kind of setup wasn't there, I probably wouldn't have thought of you. So I think it was cool in many ways. One is it establishes connection. And obviously, you've been incredible at staying in touch with people, both professionally and personally, and kind of cultivating a group and a network. But what I also admire is that this was a tech VC, but you had actors, you had politicians, you had leaders across different industries, geographies, everything. So tell me what the genesis was from that and the value you got from that and how that's benefited ABC and yourself over the years. Sure. This probably comes a little bit down to the fact that I have so many different interests and that I have friends who do a lot of different things. And so, you know, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, to me, was one of the great leaders we've had on the world stage in the last few decades. And he was a very courageous person. For me, courage is extremely important. I'd actually rather deal with someone intellectually courageous I disagree with than someone who I think is intellectually a coward who's on my team. In his case, I happen to agree with him on a lot of things. And he was the only one to stand up for Israel in certain cases where it was being wrongly condemned. And literally the only one like to stop certain things. He got punched in the face by an old French president once because of it in private, which I thought was a very, very funny story. But he and others are exemplify leadership and they exemplify traits that are very helpful to our portfolio. They also have networks, of course, that are very useful to us when we're trying to get things done around the world. You know, Ashton is a great example of someone who, as you know, probably is a great investor as well. He's very interested in products and technology. So just obviously he's a very dynamic person to have around. And it's been great to run things by him over the years. And I partnered with him early on on his nonprofit, savings thousands of kids from exploitation. We'd go online and we'd find things and save them. So, so he's someone I was working together with I knew pretty well. And just having people who could open doors for you is really critical. As you said, having people who are tied to top talent is really critical. And frankly, it makes the whole thing a lot more fun. You just have some smart people around, you know, you get to see cool people. And all of us at the fund who are partners now have probably made enough money that at least most of us don't actually really need to work anymore at this point. And so, you know, we do have a very grueling, very intense work schedule. And I think in order to keep that up, it has to be something that we enjoy and people we want to be hanging out with. And so the advisors give us a bunch of advantages. It also lets us work with people we like. Amazing. And a couple call-outs for the listeners. So American Optimist, incredible podcast. And I love the one with Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Super interesting. I encourage everyone to listen to it. And then you reference what you're doing with Ashton around Thorn. But again, incredible cause. I'd encourage everyone to check that out. For people kind of listening to this, there's probably a big question to say like, well, how based on the Valley did you get to know Ashton Kutcher and Prime Minister Stephen Harper well enough to get them on your advisory board? Well, Ashton and Demi came up to the Valley and asked for advice. When they were, he was first thinking about Thorne over a decade ago, and we had a lot of mutual friends, it turns out, because he was involved in the Valley, so I was spending a lot of time with him. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, you know, I had been advising the Canadian government on its technology strategy to the Consul General John Prado in New York. The late finance minister, Flaherty, I thought was one of the great minds also in global finance, and just because I had a lot of opinions about policy in that world, I met him and debated things, and he put some cool things in place in Canada that I was helpful with. So I think because I'd done that, the prime minister knew who I was and also just reached out through friends after he was out of office to meet. We got along really well. I was excited to try to involve him in different ways. Thanks for doing Amazing. And fast forward a few years, right? You've had this advisory board. You've now co-founded many more companies. You've invested in 
dozens and now you're starting a university, an institute. How do you balance your time? How do you think about methodically managing all of this? This is something that I probably need more mentorship on. I'm still figuring that out, Daniel. We just had our fourth daughter. She's three months old now. So I have four little girls at home. And balancing them with my reading, which is really important to me. I've always read a huge amount. I've honestly read less the last five years <laughs> because having the girls. And then APC is my main responsibility. I think my rule in general, I try to have, speaking of like, how do you use your time, is you should only be responsible for the failure of one thing at a time. This is as much as possible. I have not always kept to that, but one of the big mistakes I made early in my career is the more success you have, the more you lot will try to do a lot of things. And I saw that with a lot of other people before me. And I ended up making mistakes myself as well, though I recognized the same mistakes my mentors had made. And I went way too broad in my mid-20s on a lot of stuff. And I ended up having to call back and say, hey, you know what? It's really important at any given time. If there's one thing that fails, that thing is my fault. But it fails. And everything else has founders, has leaders, has people in it that it's their fault if it fails. And I'm just helping them. So that's how I try to structure things. So APC is the thing. If APC fails, it's my fault. Now, I may have gone a little bit beyond that rubric with UATX within the university, which, by the way, is being extremely successful. I think there was probably a year, starting about a year, a little more than a year ago, where if UATX would have failed, it would have been my fault, even though we had Pano and others. But Pano, Barry Weiss, Neil Ferguson, the best co-founders, contributed to this really well. We've raised over $120 million as of now. And the university is succeeding in lots of ways. And we've brought on now other great board members that are going to be announced. And so I think, unfortunately, even though I'm the chairman of the board, I've extricated myself to the point where I'm going to make sure it wins, but it's, but it's not only my fault anymore. And I think that's really important, right, with any new thing you're doing. Like, is it my fault that this fails? I would say, how are people who are extremely competent that other investors are betting on when they're the owner? And you really have to only own one thing at once. I know maybe Elon sees this differently and he's able to do two or three things. But even with him, I've seen things that you know, he's my best entrepreneur in the world. And because he's doing so much at once, there's certain things around him that aren't doing nearly as well as they could if he was able to give them more time. And you reference like mentors in terms of how they manage their network really effectively. Who are people you look to that you think do this in a really good way? In terms of managing networks, that's an interesting question. I think Alex Karp is smart about people, although I don't think he's nearly as broad as I am about it. I think all of the successful venture capitalists in the Valley, they do this in different ways. This, this is kind of what you're doing with it as a venture capitalist is you're nurturing an ecosystem and you're managing a network and you're doing it in a disciplined way. So you look at any of the top venture firms and see how they operate. So I think it's very impressive what they've done. I may be more aggressive than some of them. I think for several years, we were doing an average of 180 events per year. We built a system, in fact, called Affinity. Drew and I co-founded this with two amazingly talented young guys out of Stanford, Ray and Shuby, who are this now very big company. 3,000 firms are using it. But we basically built a system that used AI-driven CRM to help us. And we basically ally with different advisors and different CEOs. And it really helped track the network and prioritize for deal flow and for other things for us. And so... If people are interested, I guess, in how I think about networks like Affinity, which is now used by 3,000 firms, including the majority of VC firms in the world at this point, I kind of grew out of our thinking on that. And there's books I read early on, like the Never Eat Alone book by Keith Frazier. Yeah, Keith, I think was quite good. And that was over a decade ago. And I just think it's worth thinking about, like, making it something that you actually make it something you think about, build conceptual structures around, force yourself to have some kind of discipline around. And it shouldn't take over your life, but it has to be a big thing for what you're doing if you're going to do venture capital, if you're going to do certain other types of activities, which are important. Yeah. And I definitely think like a lot of people are not methodical about it. But what I see in you is that it benefits so many ways, like you said, diverse networks and then things come of it. But one of the things to call out about you 
is that while you're very busy, you're also one of the most responsive people I know. You came to my engagement party. You're the first to respond to something. If the answer is yes or no, you know, with this podcast, you're just like, yep, let's do it. You didn't really need to involve your team as a question. You're just like, are we doing this? So how do you balance that? Do you have a philosophy or a value around like responsiveness and transparency? And how do you balance that with all the things you do? Yeah, you know, I, I have so much going on that I, I, I realized just, I have to be responsive. Otherwise, if I don't get back really quickly, I might never get back to the person because there's going to be something else tomorrow, you know? So actually, it's funny. I got subpoenaed. I mentioned online in this Twitter thing, right? Because I guess I know Elon. I'm not involved in Twitter, but Twitter subpoenaed me because they're fishing everything. And so I have to upload all my emails until the lawyer systems in order to like see which ones are going to have to go to Twitter is the way this process works. And I've crashed now the first two different systems they used because they said they never had this many volume of emails before that <laughs> they've had to upload. So it's quite proud of <laughs> We're still trying to extract the emails for Twitter, but I don't think we're going to find anything. But anyway, but uh, yeah, no, I try to, I, I, I do fire 600 a day. I spend three or four hours on it now, which is annoying, but I'm really fast. So you know, I'll be flying home tonight on the plane back to Texas and I'll just get the rest of them back then. I try to do it in real time. Sometimes it's very rude in meetings. And so I try not to do it too much, as much real time as I have. It's a trade-off. But yeah, you, you have to get back to people. Well, there's people you admire and people you like, like you respond, you do think with them. I actually, Daniel Love, spend more time with you. I haven't got to see you nearly enough. And so I'm obviously honored you asked me and happy to come on. But I think it's just in general, it's good to just like do things for and spend time with good people around you and do as much as you can. Yeah, I appreciate that. And one of the things that I admire about you, if I were to look over the years, is you've had very deep first principle thinking. I could probably ask you something across any subject and you would always have an opinion on it. But more than just having these ideas in your head, you're executing on them and bring it back to the topic we're decoding around diverse networks. I truly admire it. And there's like very few people that can see something similar where not only do you have this network, not only do you have these ideas, you're able to execute on them in a way that allows you to do many things at once in an effective way. But also what I found is that those people that you're mentoring or partnering with or co-founding with, they're all better off for that partnership and you're enabling them to lead and thrive. That's something I find super inspiring at the same time. I really appreciate that one. I do do a lot of things these days. It's very important to me to try to only take upside when I'm going to be creating enough value to make the person happy that I have that upside. So I actually I probably kept taking a lot more in a lot of things that I've built over the last decade. But and I'm not saying I always get this right, but I think it's just really, really important to try to like exceed expectations, you know, based on what your share is. And even if you could have taken more then, like because I'm doing so many other things, it kind of is a very positive thing to do if you do it right. And in terms of your co-founders, whether it's at OpenGov or with the university or Palantir or any of these examples, like, and maybe I bring it back to this kind of concept that you shared around, like you have one thing to fail on. It seems like you must have this methodology, which is like, I'm co-founding with you, but it's your neck for the failure. Like, what's your philosophy around like accountability in teams and how do you get people to be a part of the team, but then also like know that this is on them, you know? I'm still learning over time how to get accountability right. I've biased very strongly towards loyalty and towards being a good partner, someone I'm building with. And there are cases where we've had to replace CEOs or, or in a couple of cases, shift the CEO's role to really, you should be head of product, but you shouldn't be CEO here. In most of those cases, maybe all of them, they all, except for with the small exceptions, it was like a year or two too late that we did the shift because you kind of knew it, but you kind of really wanted to give the person a chance. And, and that's a really hard thing for me about business. There probably are some of these things in business like that where I might benefit from being a little more of a jerk or at least a little more willing to like break the glass a little faster 
And I see people like Bezos who are willing to do that really aggressively. And I think Elon is also more in that direction where he's a little, a little more aggressive on that. So I'm kind of still learning, turning 40 soon. So I'm getting to be an adult now. So still learning how to be properly aggressive. Well, I, I'm obviously extremely aggressive with trying to succeed and being ambitious. And for me, I will try to hold myself accountable. Like if the company's doing a certain level well, like I will make sure that financing is done right because I've done that a thousand times and we'll get that right together and we'll go out to the world and we'll work on that together. And I'll make sure to help with certain things, make sure the right people are giving feedback on certain things, whether you need it in, in the engineering side or product side or product guy. Historically, myself, I spend a lot of time on marketing these days where marketing is defined as kind of like a top level sales strategy that kind of juxtaposes between product and between like, you know, sales cohorts and how you're going to go after that, how you're going to find markets and find things for them. So, so there's parts I try to make sure I'm holding up my own on. And then you kind of give them expectations and make sure they're holding up their own. I think the only thing that really drives me crazy is if you have someone you're working with and it's clear they're not giving their all to it. And it's clear they're misaligned somehow or there's something else that's making them not hold up their part of the bargain. And to build these companies, again, it's like winning a gold medal in the Olympics. You have to be that intense. If you're not training hard enough to win a gold medal in the Olympics, you're not going to have a multi-million dollar tech company most of the time. So I just need to make sure people are giving their all. Like that's their job as the main founder. You know? And I feel like this is great taking a story arc to where we are today and all the amazing things that you've done. And I really want to touch on some of the big problems that exist today because the last time we spoke, you talked about how people aren't doing enough in deep tech or solving hard problems. So I wanted to give a minute to kind of talk about what you think are some of the biggest problems to solve and what are some examples? You know, it's funny. I was talking to a reporter who's doing a story today on the Palantir Path, which I guess is her version of the PayPal Mafia. And it was kind of interesting for me to go back and look at like the 30 or 40 companies that I'm aware of that have come out and that I've helped with from that group. And what I'm really proud of from Palantir and I think Adapart and other companies like OpenGov as well is the willingness to take on these problems that seem just like really intractable and really, really, really big. So, you know, it's almost comical to say you're going to go and you're going to fix the information architecture for the tens of billions of dollars spent in the U.S. in defense intelligence world and for the 40 main allies, right? It's just like, that's a big problem and how do we go about doing it? You almost need to be a little bit crazy to attack these things. And so for me, the biggest problems in the world are like, where are there giant gaps and things that are broken that should not be broken? Probably the most important one today is just like a bunch of these areas of government. That's what I'm obsessed with right now. Just so many examples. And I'm keeping it totally nonpartisan. There's just so many examples of just like, bad incentives and just things that are lack of accountability and, and just, just all sorts of messes. I think similar to government, when you kind of go towards that side of the spectrum of these like kind of big, giant, slow institutions that aren't responsive, you get lots of things in healthcare, the way we run hospitals, the way competition works in general in healthcare. We have these cartels blocking competition, stopping competition, but you have very little incentive to get things right in the hospital and get things efficient. We talked about engineering being about efficiency, right? And about doing more with less. And that's just not how hospitals or healthcare systems are set up at all right now. They're just waste everywhere. There's no feedback mechanism to get rid of that waste. And you see this in so many areas of society. They're very important. You see it in lots of areas of education that are very important right now as well. Or just not feedback mechanisms to improve the broken parts of our universities to improve. We did something, again, nonpartisan. We did something with vocational education recently. We saw these vocational schools were failing their graduates, people going there coming out with low salaries. We changed the incentives for the schools. In this case, I guess it's a policy solution versus a tech solution. And we made it so the schools, the vocational schools will only get their funding with a portion to the salaries of the students coming out because they're supposed to be giving people jobs. That's the whole point of the school. And the salaries of these schools 
all throughout the state of Texas, went up 117% over six years, like as of two years ago. So it was before inflation and just dramatically changed based on having the incentive for I would take this to a bunch of other states. And so for me, I'm looking at where are the big gaps in the world and how could technology entrepreneurship and up in policy entrepreneurship fix them? And you know, with Cicero, I'm doing all the policy stuff with ABC. We're building a lot of things in a lot of industries on the tech side. I mean, I guess another giant gap in the world for me right now is nuclear energy. It's just obviously an answer that could be so much better and people just vastly underestimate how much better nuclear energy could be if we actually put the resources on it and we're allowed to iterate on it in the right way the next decade for all these problems. There's just a lot of kind of really big problems you can solve with these kind of bold projects. And so we're just trying to help other people push them forward. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about last time was the methodology in which you do it. So back in the day, you didn't have access to funding. Now there is. We see with AppDirect just so much transformation within traditional industries and still so much opportunity to transform the enterprise through technology. But one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is super interesting, is kind of really the intersection of private equity and technology. Can you speak a little bit more to your thoughts on how you can fuse, let's say, a venture funding model with private equity to create really interesting outcomes? Private equity is interesting. It's I've written a few pieces on this in the past where I think it plays a really important role in the economy. A lot of what private equity can do, if used correctly, is help scale an idea really quickly in an economy. So let's just say, for example, that there's like 80,000 loading yards around the US, which are these like logistical hubs that are used. And there's a lot of people working at them. There's a lot of costs that get things in and out. And let's say you figure out how to use like autonomous driving and AI loading, and you make these things work way more efficiently for you know, way less cost, way less emissions. Let's say if you have a technology doing that, a private equity firm would probably be a way to take that tech company, which might be doing this in a few places, and scale it really quickly because a private equity firm can buy 10 or 20,000 of these or may already own that many. And now just take this rollout out right away, which is a much, much more efficient way for the economy to very quickly do that. So I think venture is about like solving the problem, improving it. And then sometimes these companies can scale them themselves, but sometimes you can use private equity to scale better. I see a lot of areas of the economy where there's these assets that could be either using new technology, like in that case, or the assets themselves have data that could then be used to make them run better to solve other problems in the economy. And you know, you really can unlock this by selling software. You can also unlock it by being the owner. In many cases, being the owner is just much more efficient as a way to unlock these things. And so you see kind of this tech-driven private equity becoming a very important part of how you make the economy more efficient. And obviously, that scales prosperity in the world. Yeah, and one of the observations that I've definitely seen with tech stacks is that if you're let's say, developed within one organization, there's going to be a lot of bad incentive, a lot of tech debt. If you're a company that only services a few people, and you mentioned this as a bad outcome, you're going to be concentrated. Your roadmap's going to be ripped up. But if you're a pen tech company that can create microservices architecture with APIs that are really well documented and the ability to build a lot on top of that platform, then you can have a lot of people adopt and your roadmap's not going to get hijacked. So one of the things I've been definitely thinking a lot about is like, what are the industries in which you kind of see this platform, but then you can use private equity to accelerate it or even a network of existing corporations or entities. But from your technology hat and seeing a lot of things play out, what do engineers and CTOs need to think of early days to architect for scale versus making some problems that are going to create a lot of tech debt and slow you down down the road? No, definitely. I think you said some of it. It reminds me of things I'm seeing in healthcare now scale these things up as well. Where, and you have to design this thing in such a way that it is an architecture with all these different microservices and with everything defined about this, how it works together and why it's going to work together a certain way. And you know, it's really fun with Adapar. We're doing all these things now 
where we're at creating different sandboxes where someone can create an app that runs on the platform but doesn't actually get to see the data in order to kind of show you, suggest things to you because you don't want to give everyone that kind of personal information, but you do want to be able to be exposed to the right kinds of financial products that might be specifically relevant for your information if your portfolio, you know, it's a very complicated portfolio. And just like in this case, like we break the architecture in a way that it's not too hard to do it, but you always end up having to go back and to kind of redo the architecture a little bit to make it scale to these kind of much bigger, much more complicated use cases. And this is like the classic battle, Daniel. I'm sure you're constantly fighting as well as like there's certain people on the tech team that are like almost always wanting to go back and get rid of tech debt because there's infinite theoretical tech debt. And then there's other people who are like the prototype hackers that will like create so much tech debt that they're going to break your company in two or three years because you're not going to be able to build anymore. It's going to be so slow to build. You see most of the big banks in the world, most of the big hospitals in the world, most of the government institutions, they have effectively infinite tech debt to the point where it's just so slow to build there. And then, in fact, it ends up scaring away your best engineers because they're like, I do not want to deal with this environment. It's a total mess. And so it really is an art at the end of the day because there's extremes that are both wrong, but you do need things like really, really cleanly, really clearly done. So I tend to skew towards you know, like the types of people who do want to get rid of tech debt responsibly while also pushing ahead. So I'd be a little bit more towards fixing the tech debt side. But I've seen that, that done to an extreme that's really bad as well. So I think having a healthy tension there, if your engineers are all happy about how much tech debt you're getting rid of, you're definitely doing it wrong. You should not all be happy. That means there's no one pushing back on them hard enough. But at the same time, you don't want a disaster of a situation. So it's, it's a hard thing to get rid of. Joe, this was really exciting. I appreciate you taking the time. And I think when we look at the story arc of your career, knowing that you're not even 40 yet, I'm really excited of what's to come and the things you can achieve. And I feel like you've already made such a profound impact on the world and many entrepreneurs such as myself. So we thank you and we thank your ideas, policy and mentorship. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Good to spend some time with you. Hope to see you soon. Likewise. Take care, Joe. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.